Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I am just so stressed out because of this. I just don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm tired. From fighting with an attorney on the stand to lip smacking to potentially winning the case for the prosecution, we recap some of the most memorable witnesses from recent trials. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Law and Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. We here at Sidebar and Law and Crime, we are privy to seeing a lot of people testify. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. It's kind of hard to keep track of all of the witnesses in so many trials that we've covered. But sometimes there are those witnesses, those people that just stand out and you will remember no matter what. So we thought, let's discuss the top five most memorable witnesses from the recent past. Because in the last few years, we have seen and heard some pretty interesting folks. And I want to start with someone relatively recent, David Beckwith out of Tampa, Florida. So David Beckwith testified in the trial of Michael Keatley. Keatley was accused of shooting six men, killing two of them back on Thanksgiving 2010. The victims were brothers Juan and Sergio Guitron. And this story is a bit complicated, but here's what happened. Keatley was an ice cream truck driver, and one day he was robbed and shot. This shooting actually left him partially disabled. So the state said that Keatley was hell-bent on revenge. He wanted to find the people who did this to him. And in a case of mistaken identity, he actually targeted the wrong people and opened fire, killing these brothers. It is really, really sad, completely innocent people. They weren't connected to what happened to him in any way. So he was arrested and he was charged with two counts of murder and four counts of attempted murder. He went to trial for a second time in March of 2023. His first trial three years earlier ended in a mistrial. And one of the people called to testify for the prosecution was David Beckwith. David Beckwith met Michael Keatley after he was robbed inside the ice cream truck, and he partnered up with Keatley. He helped him sell ice cream. He acted almost as his protector, even carrying a gun with him. And he testified that Keatley would constantly talk to him about wanting to find the people who robbed him, how he would question people on his ice cream route for more information. And this was really helpful testimony for the prosecution to show that Michael Keatley was out for revenge and was a vigilante. But now, under cross-examination by defense attorney Richard Escobar, who many of you might remember represented Curtis Reeves in the self-defense movie theater shooting that we covered on Law and Crime, Escobar was trying to make the point that Keatley was physically impaired. He couldn't be the shooter, but also brought out these inconsistencies in Beckwith's testimony, really got under his skin. While Mr. Beckwith was getting quite irritated at Escobar's line of questioning, and he let it show, even becoming vocal. At one point, 
You were aware of that when you went to work for him. He had just had another surgery on his hands. Your answer, yep, he had, sur he had a surgery, yeah. So I know he's had surgeries, but you're asking me specific surgeries. I don't know what the hell he's had. You would agree that the reason that you went to go work with him again was because he was physically pretty limited. Yeah, that's redundant. Let's go. You agree that he had limited motion in that hand. You're asking me to be a doctor because I'm not a doctor. Well, weren't you able to see the fact that he had limited motion in his hand? You don't have to be a doctor for that, do you? I have limited motion in my, my shoulder, can you tell? I mean, he did. I, I don't know what to, how to explain it. Yeah, he was shot up, but it didn't stop him from being able to start a vehicle, get in a vehicle, or shoot a gun. Well, so I don't know what else you're trying to ask of me. And by your own words, he was, I'm not going to use the ugly word, effed up. Those were your words. Sure. Michael Keatley, okay. in your words, was effed up. Right? Yeah. I'm effed up. Can you tell? You hadn't told him that you were a three-time convicted felon, right? Oh, he already knew that. Well, how did, how did he know? You didn't because tell he, Yes, I did. Oh, tell yes, me, I did. He knew what, it, he knew it before I ever got on that van that I was a convicted tell felon. Tell me what date you told him. The day I started working with him. Oh, so... It, was that part of an application process? Okay, sure. If you want to be a smartass to me, I mean, I'll be a smartass back. Wait, wait, I'm not going to allow that, all right? Just answer the question. Yeah, that was a fun back and forth. In fact, I should tell you that Escobar told the court after Beckwith was excused from the stand that Beckwith had made some sort of gesture to him as he left the courtroom. Escobar said he saw it as some kind of challenge, maybe to do something outside. He told the court, I'm a big boy. I'm not worried about it. He just told the court about it nonetheless. Well, in the end, Michael Keatley was found guilty across the board and sentenced to life in prison. Okay, now let's move on to two witnesses that really stood out in one trial. Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. I'm going to be honest with you. This was a tough one. There were so many witnesses that left impressions during the course of this case. And really, what a trial it was. The Pirates of the Caribbean star sued his ex-wife for defamation for comments that she made in a Washington Post op-ed piece calling him an abuser. She countersued him for comments that were made by his attorney on his behalf, calling her claims a hoax and that they were fabricated. It was a really nasty, nasty case. It saw both actors testifying against each other. We learned about all forms of domestic abuse, from physical to mental. The couple's dirty laundry was shared for the world to see, and it brought Hollywood into the courtroom. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. But I want to highlight two very notable witnesses that testified. And no, I don't mean... Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. First, Alejandro Romero. Alejandro Romero worked at the front desk of the Eastern Columbia building in Los Angeles where Depp and Heard lived together for several years. And his pre-recorded deposition testimony was played for the jury. He was asked questions about 
anything that he observed, including potential injuries on Heard's face. Well, the only issue is the substance of Romero's testimony may have been drowned out by what jurors saw. You see, Romero was answering questions while driving his car and vaping. May 24? Yes. Yep, now it's Tuesday. But in fact, you don't recall seeing Amber Heard on May 24th, correct? I don't remember. I don't even remember what I got for breakfast. Over the line. So the incident was May 21st, 2016. You saw her the night of May 25th, correct? Correct. Well, she was there. Ever heard treat you well? And was she friendly to you in each of these hundreds of times? Yes, yes. I, I'm not going to say no because she was really always nice. All right, this is my last question. Be nice. All right, this is my last question. You testified in response to Mr. Presidio's questions um, that you testified truthfully in all of these occasions. Did you testify truthfully, truthfully to everything that you testified in response to my questions today? That's correct. Uh, right. I, I did. But you weren't looking for bruises, cuts, swelling, red marks, or any other injuries on Ms. Hurd's face that night, were you? I was not looking for any marks or bruises or anything, uh, but something like that it will be really noticeable. But I guess you know I was not looking. I was more focusing on what my job duties was, like getting the key, and also this. I gave him the key, and they were talking about. I told her, you know what, your dog. I was talking with Raquel because her dog got out of her unit. And that was one of, one of my concerns. I would tell her, you know what? I saw your dog was outside. He didn't want me to get, get too close to it. So it's still out there. You know, on the penthouse area, that dog will be fine because it's not, like I said, it's always really quiet. And Mr. Depp owns everything up there. So it'll be fine. So that was one, one of my concerns. That was my job. I was just taking care of that. I was not trying to say, oh, let me see your face. No. They come down. They say, somebody try to get into my unit. There's scratches on my door. Say, and like, oh, um, I'm really sorry, but who will think is going to get into your unit because they saw some scratches on the door, like, what, four inches above the door? because the dog was crashing, the door was trying to get in, and they thought about someone trying to break into the, the, the unit. I said, on my head, I was like, you really you think someone's trying to get into your unit? There's crashes like four inches above your the floor and your door. That was the dog trying to get into the unit. I always make eye contact with someone I'm talking to, but I'm not looking to find something like, like, oh, your makeup is wrong, uh, you, you haven't uh, have changed your eyebrows, or your uh, eyelashes are not even, or I'm not looking for anything. I'm just looking at their eyes, and I'm, looking, I'm not looking for anything else. I, I just so stressed out because of this. I just don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm tired. I don't want to deal with this court case. I, everybody got problems. And I don't want to deal with this no more. Okay. I don't want 
I don't want to put this in any more words. Yeah, some of those moments went very viral on social media and YouTube. Got to say, I don't think I've ever seen someone vape and drive while answering questions under oath. But hey, there's a first time for everything. But now I want to talk about another memorable witness, psychiatrist Dr. David Spiegel. He testified on behalf of Amber Heard, and he said that Johnny Depp's behavior was consistent with a substance abuser and someone who perpetrates intimate partner violence. Now, I'm not one to judge, okay? But Dr. Spiegel's way of speaking, his mannerisms, his demeanor, it became a thing of online chatter. Now, sadly, after the trial, and we know Johnny Depp won this case, he won all of his claims, Amber Heard won on a counterclaim too, but this really was Johnny Depp's victory. Well, after the trial, Dr. Spiegel said that he received intense backlash from Johnny Depp supporters. And he told Newsweek, quote, never in my life have I been the target of such voluminous amounts of hate ever. So clearly, people had strong feelings about him. Let's play some of his testimony and you'll see just how unique of a witness Dr. Spiegel was. You talked about the fact that Mr. Depp uh, indicates that from time to time, he uses an earpiece. I was, yeah, I mean, I, I read that, yes. Okay. Um, did you read the testimony of Mr. Wyatt, who told you what was being pumped into that earpiece? Yeah, I mean, if I, if I remember right, I mean, it was, I think it was lines, right? No, it was music. It was music, not his line? Yeah. Okay. So if, if Mr. Depp was listening to music, rather than being fed his lines, does that change your opinion as to his cognitive function? If he was never fed his lines through the earpiece, which I know he was, but read he was, and that may have been that example, Mr. Wyatt may have said that it was music. I guess the question is, were you having the music during the, during the actual talking of your lines? Is that what you're saying to me? But, but Mr. Depp is pretty good at acting. You, you, you acknowledge that early on. Absolutely. Well, better than me, so I know that. Because you don't act. In fact, you don't know about acting. You're right. I have no okay. idea about acting. And you don't know how prevalent the use of earpieces are in acting. Again, I, do, I, I know nothing about acting. I think in the basis of what I've read about it, I'm comfortable that I, I don't believe that actors are routinely given their entire script earpieces. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, but, and, and but not one whit of evidence that ever, this ever happened I, here. I guess what I said, I just said, I find it hard to believe. I didn't say it. I said, I find it hard to believe. You know where, whether Marlon Brando used an earpiece? Whether, isn't he dead? <laughs> yeah. So the answer is no, he does not use one now. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I used the past tense. So. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, again, I know nothing. I will concede to you, I know nothing about acting. I will concede to you 100%. If that is the standard and people are done that acting, then I apologize and that was wrong on my part. If that's the standard, I'm wrong. I don't know. Any of Mr. Depp's other portrayals in movies, did that affect your analysis of processing speed? Only I've seen him interact on interviews right. and that was it. Right. When he wasn't in movies. What, right. But Willy Wonka doesn't matter to you? You see him in that movie, Charlie and Chocolate Factory? Did you look at that one when you were comparing his processing speed?
Do I have to answer that question, Your Honor? You have to answer questions. Yes, sir. No, you'll be happy to know I didn't see Willy Wonka. As a, I didn't see 21 Jump Street when it happened, whatever it was about. No, I did not. Yeah, he was definitely one of the more interesting witnesses that we've seen here at Long Crime. For our listeners, you don't see this, but one of the reasons Dr. Spiegel went viral is this strange lip-smacking, licking thing he did with his mouth. We played it in one of those clips, and many saw that as quite bizarre. Again, I'm not one to judge. I don't want to judge, but whatever you want to call it, he was unique. He had quite the personality, and he certainly was a memorable witness. Now, let's take a step back. We've been having some fun going over some of the more amusing witnesses that have taken the stand in our recent trials, but let's be very clear. Trials aren't supposed to be funny. We're dealing with very serious subject matter, and not all witnesses stand out in our minds because they make us laugh. Some stand out because how powerful their testimony was. And that brings us to our next witness, Dr. Martin Tobin. Dr. Tobin is a pulmonologist, which means he's a physician who specializes in the respiratory system. Dr. Tobin was called to the stand by the prosecution in the Minnesota trial of Derek Chauvin. This was the former police officer who infamously kneeled on George Floyd for over nine minutes until the point where George Floyd died. Chauvin was charged with second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. And the biggest question, biggest legal question, was did Chauvin cause Floyd's death? So Dr. Tobin comes up, and this is an expert who actually chose not to be paid for his services. Think about how rare that is. When experts are called to the stand, that's the first question they're asked. How much are you being paid to testify? It's a question that goes to their credibility. Are they just a gun for hire, right? So here's someone who chose not to be paid, but agreed to provide his expertise to the case. Okay, that's the backdrop. Now listen to how clearly, carefully, and in such an articulate way he explains his conclusion. A conclusion that arguably may have won the case for the prosecution. Have you formed an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty on the cause of Mr. Floyd's death? Yes, I have. Uh, Would you please tell the jury what that opinion or opinions are? Yes, Yes, uh, Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen, and this caused damage to his brain that we see, and it also caused uh, a PEA arrhythmia that caused his heart to stop. He's against a hard asphalt street. So the way they're pushing down on his handcuffs combined with the street, his left side, and it's particularly the left side we see that, it's like the left side is in a vice. It's totally being pushed in, squeezed in from each side, from the street at the bottom, and then from the uh, the way that the handcuffs are manipulated. It's not just the handcuffs. It's how the handcuffs are being held, how they're being pushed, where they're being pushed, that uh, totally interfere with central features of how we breathe. So uh, Mr. Floyd then is, is pancake between the pavement underneath him and then force on top of him. Precisely. There's just no way he's going to be able to expand that. But with this, the left image, you see the finger on the street. Then over on the right image, you see his knuckle against the tire. And to most people, this doesn't look terribly significant. But to a physiologist, 
this is extraordinarily significant because this tells you that he has used up his resources and he is now literally trying to breathe with his fingers and knuckles. Explain why the knee on the neck is so significant. The knee on the neck is extremely important because it's going to occlude the air getting in through the passageway. You need to examine your own necks. Up at the top of your Adam's apple, you're now directly over the hypopharynx. And the hypopharynx is the crucial area in Mr. Floyd. So this here is where the hypopharynx is located on your surface anatomy. So why is the hypopharynx uh, important for understanding this case, what happened? The hypopharynx is very important for understanding this case for a number of reasons. Because it's so vulnerable, because it has no cartilage around it, it's going to be an area that is compressed, it's extremely small. In the case of Mr. Floyd, the narrowing was of his hypopharynx? It was in the hypopharynx, yes. Uh, did the uh, Mr. Chauvin's knee on the neck then cause the narrowing of the hypopharynx? Yes, it did. So if you might recall Mr. Floyd's uh, last words, you know, I can't breathe. Right. Uh, are, are, are those words significant to you as a pulmonologist? Yes, I mean, obviously they're important different ways. One, he's complaining to you of difficulty with breathing, but they're also telling me that at that time when he's saying, please, I can't breathe, he's we know at that point he has oxygen in his brain. But, and again, it's a perfect example of how it gives you a huge false sense of security because very shortly after that, we're going to see that he has a major loss of oxygen in the way that he moves his leg. And so it tells you how dangerous is the concept of if you can breathe or if you can speak, you can breathe. Yes, that is true on the surface, but highly misleading. Very, a very dangerous uh, mantra. We know Derek Chauvin was convicted. The jury believed he was responsible and that he was the cause for killing George Floyd. And you can disagree with me, but I have to believe this testimony from Dr. Martin Tobin certainly helped the prosecution in a major way. I remember watching him testify and just thought, wow, the way he described everything, the way he broke it down, just a stellar, stellar expert witness that you would want in your camp. Okay, now we're going to move on to our final memorable witness, and that is Dominique Jones. She testified on behalf of the prosecution in the murder case against former NFL player Travis Rudolph. Rudolph was charged with one count of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder after firing 39 shots at a vehicle that was carrying four men who had just gotten into a physical altercation with him outside of his Florida home. Rudolph says he was defending himself. Now, Dominique Jones comes into this because she was Rudolph's current girlfriend at the time. You see, Jones wasn't living in the Miami area where Rudolph was residing, and she decided to visit. She went through his phone and saw some things that she didn't like. Yeah, Travis was seeing another woman. And once she saw these flirty texts, the two began fighting, apparently getting physical, and the state painted the picture that she was upset and her brother and his friends came to fight off Travis and his brother Daryl. But on cross-examination, the defense dug into some texts of her own. 
and you testified that he was disrespectful yesterday. That's the moral of the story. Is that correct? Correct. Isn't the moral of the story is that you sent your brother and his friends to go kill Travis? No, the moral of the story is him putting his hands on me. That is really the basis of everything. And, and I didn't send my brothers to kill him. No, you just sent a text to go shoot up his sh right? I, I didn't say shoot him. You sent a text to go shoot up his shit, right? Correct. What's, tell the jury what the shit is. When you're angry, you say things. I'm sure everyone in this courtroom has said something when you're, I'm trying to speak. If you want me to answer your question, you have to let me answer your question. Well, if you were responsive to my question, I wouldn't have to. All right, answer the question, please. Okay, can you repeat your question? Question was, shit. what does shit mean in the context of that text? Anything but him. You told the jury, then he said, get the F out of my house. That's what you told the jury. Yesterday. Okay, he might have said that. That's, yeah, he said that. He wanted you out. He wasn't blocking you. He wanted you out of the house. He wanted me to get out after he told me to go in the house to get my things. So I went into the house to grab my personal items that I brought over there. Right. He didn't want you there anymore. He wanted you out of his house. That's what you told the jury yesterday. Okay. He wasn't keeping you confined in there, was he? He was. He wasn't falsely imprisoning you yet uh, uh, on the 6th, was he? He was keeping me confined in the room. That's why I picked up the trophy. And that's why he told you to get the F out of the house. That's, you're not in chronological order, so you're saying it. At some point, he told you to get, get the F out of his house, did he not? After he held me in the room and was not allowing me to leave. He wanted absolutely nothing to do with you. Isn't that the fact? I wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. And isn't true, you told this jury yesterday, that Travis said, I don't like you anymore. You remember that? You remember telling this to the jury yesterday? He was saying, I don't necessarily remember him saying those exact words, but he was saying a lot of things. Like like I, I said as... Then why'd you tell the jury yesterday he said, I don't like you anymore? He probably did say that. He was saying a lot of hurtful things. On direct examination... Today, with Ms. Edwards, you said you were asked some questions um, about web searches, and you said uh, you did some of the searching in case if I need to turn myself in. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember saying that. What did you mean by that? I was unaware, unknowledgeable about this entire situation, so I did some research. That's the bottom line of it. Can we please move on from this question? Because you believed you had some culpability that you had. If I believe I had some culpability, I would have never came. I would have came in with a lawyer, a paid one, not a pro bono one. And I would have made sure that I would have never spoke to any law enforcement if I thought anything was going to happen to me. Right. Did I do that? No, I completely from day one agreed, turned my phone in. Anything that was asked of me, I did. So, no, you have it incorrect, and that's the last time I'm speaking on that. So you turned your phone in over a week later after you deleted items from it. No, when, when they told me to turn my phone in, my phone was turned in. And items were deleted from it, right? And they retrieved them is what I heard. Okay. And you were concerned still, though. Uh, Who wouldn't be concerned? This is not a normal situation. Of course I'm going to be concerned. That's why you said... I needed to do this research to see if I had to turn myself in. I research everything. I research what, any little thing, I research. 
I have no I'm a knowledgeable child. I'm sorry if you felt like this was inappropriate to research. Full responsibility, full accountability. She admits to sending the text, telling her brother and friends to go shoot up Travis Rudolph, but it seems like she didn't like being called out or challenged by the defense on her culpability. In my opinion, her testimony may have ruined the prosecution's case. The defense team basically set the backdrop that Dominique Jones started the whole situation. And that Travis Rudolph took the stand. We know he did this. He explained how he defended himself. And in the end, he ended up getting acquitted on all charges. So, some very memorable witnesses. Oh, and I'm sure there are many more to come. That's all we have for you here on Sidebar, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Weber. I'll speak to you next time. 